The Discover podcast covers the topics that you want to hear. Our autistic presenters bring together scientists, professionals and experts by experience to discuss autism facts, theories and personal stories. We include a broad range of views and informally chat about new or unfinished research, so don't take everything that you hear as fact. We look forward to including you in the conversation. This episode contains some adult content with some references to sex. It might not be suitable for young ears or to listen to in the office. Welcome to the Autistica Discover podcast, where we discuss autistic life, love and everything in between. We want to create an inclusive world so everyone's welcome to our podcast. Maybe you're autistic or you think you might be. Maybe you know some autistic people or maybe you just want to understand more. We're here to help you discover what life is like for autistic people. My name is Laura James. I'm an author and a journalist and I was diagnosed as autistic as an adult. I'm Kat Hughes. I'm autistic and I'm the research and grants officer with Autistica. Hi, I'm Colin. I'm autistic and I'm a public health student and I also work as a consultant for autism research. So the first interview that you're going to hear it has to be one of my top favourites um, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it. So I popped along to see Dr Amy Pearson um, who is in the School of Psychology at the same university I study in. Um, so sometimes we'll cross paths and we know each other and um, it was really nice to pop along and actually see some of the work that she does in her department. Um, but we're also quite mischievous when we get together. Um, some of which sadly didn't make it under the recording. Uh, I've certainly learned to start the recorder as soon as I enter the room in the future. Um, but for now, here's Amy talking with me about relationships and uh, mate crime and being a little bit cheeky with uh, a discussion about some research she's been doing on BDSM as well, which is certainly not for the faint-hearted. Okay, so I'm here today to speak to Amy Pearson, who's at the University of Sunderland, which is a very, very easy walk for me to get to, um, to talk about one of the themes that I think was probably the the most popular when we asked people what we wanted, what they wanted us to talk about, and that was relationships. Um, we're going to widen things up a little bit and talk about relationships, friendships, and sex, which is the <laughs> beautiful topic to start the day with, and perfect for a podcast where I can turn bright red and nobody's going to know. <laughs> Um, so one of the controversies that happened two or three days before we started recording this that I just cannot resist, I've resisted going on Twitter about it, I've just kept silent, but um, there's been a lot of talk about relationships and there's been um, a few very vocal people who have suggested that autistic people can't have meaningful relationships and oh, I can't (laughs) I can't even begin to to think about how, first of all, it's really damaging in that this is sort of autistic people perpetuating stereotypes. And, and absolutely, they may have personal experiences. They might have had some very difficult times. They might have had been in a very abusive relationship. And I'm, you must have been sort of um, in touch with a lot of autistic people and, and who've told you stories about their friendships and relationships. 
Um, so what do you think about this idea that we can't have these meaningful sort of in-depth relationships? It's just so unequivocally false that it's really hard to know where to start with that. So, yeah, I obviously have spoken to a lot of autistic people through research, but I also have autistic family members and autistic friends, people that I interact with on a regular basis and have meaningful relationships with personally. Um but also see other autistic people have meaningful relationships and engage in meaningful relationships in ways that work for them. And yeah, relationships might look a little bit different to some people um, and what they classify as a meaningful relationship might look slightly different. But to suggest that autistic people can't have meaningful relationships, it is it is really damaging. And especially when it comes from, I think, people who are in the autistic community, because it does kind of have that slant of, I guess, sometimes an internalized bias. Um, but having someone, I think, maybe who you feel like you identify with and align with say these things that you maybe feel really don't describe your experience, I guess I guess it's looking at it in a very black and white way um, instead of acknowledging that you, you personally can have an issue in a relationship without that meaning that everybody has poor relationships. And if you have good relationships, you can't be autistic, which is just utterly ridiculous. At first I thought, oh, well, just don't, don't comment. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't add anything to it. But these stereotypes can actually do quite a lot of harm. I like to have a small circle of friends. That's mm. a choice. And there's a difference between being, um, you know, having a quiet life and picking, you know, how you want people to surround you, and being lonely, which is more of like an unmet need. Um, so trying to pick that apart, but it just it really felt like. Um, yet another stereotype sort of layered on and I don't think that if, I mean if they, if they lived in my house with my thin walls that neurotypical relationships aren't always meaningful and deep either um, and there's a plenty of them that don't work out so there's also, there's also this sort of false idea of this ideal relationship that everybody else has but autistic people don't a lot of this comes from that really old school kind of thought that was autistic aloneness and this view of just like I think a male child in a dark room with their head on their knees um that kind of pervaded image used by charities back in the day um and we know that's not the case and yeah meaningful relationships look different for different people so I you know personally have my I have a best friend um, and I see my best friend maybe once every few months um, and we might not talk to each other very much in between but that doesn't really impact on how close we are as friends and I think that's very much the case for how people view kind of autistic and non-autistic friendships is that there's an idealized form of friendship that everyone should have and it involves certain ways of doing things or certain ways of being um, and really what that doesn't account for is people's personal communication styles or how much they want to interact with people whether they are extroverted or introverted if you believe in that kind of psychological construct um yeah and it's it's a lot more complex relationships are a lot more complex again recently on twitter i've seen a lot of discussion around play and how autistic kids play and how autistic adults play um and whether there's a right or wrong way to play like if you're lining toys up is that a wrong way to play and it's play it's meant to be fun and it's the same for friendship. A friendship is meant to be whatever you want it to be. Yeah, and it, it, that's it. it's finding your own groove. And and um, I think accepting that different is not necessarily 
less. But that's not to say that there aren't sometimes some extra challenges or pitfalls. And I think that was one of the reasons that I wanted to come here today is that you've done some work on mate crime. Um, and I think that's recognising that actually sometimes autistic people can be more vulnerable. Um, I guess the first thing is, what what is mate crime? <laughs> oh, this is, this is the bit that's always really hard is defining it. So mate crime in the literature tends to be defined as a form of hate crime, um, specifically a form of disability hate crime um, that can encompass a range of different acts that may both be criminal and technically non-criminal. So things like theft and sexual exploitation and abuse, but also just things like kind of cruelty and humiliation um, that really draw upon somebody's individual um, issues that some really only someone close to them might be aware of. Mate crime isn't limited to disabled people. So anyone can be victimized by somebody close to them. But there are certain situational vulnerabilities that often relate to disability that do make people more vulnerable in those situations. And that might be historical issues and societal issues. So things like a higher likelihood of poverty or being previously socially excluded and being really desperate for friendship and, and anyone offering you that you really clawing onto it as something that you might need. Um, people's own internalized biases so maybe thinking oh well, maybe I deserve to be treated like that because I'm you know I act like this or maybe I'm lesser than other people um, and also I guess one of my personalized things that I'm quite interested in the idea of compliance so that a lot of particularly autistic people um, have been in situations or been raised in situations where social compliance has been pushed as something really to aim for and if you're teaching someone to act like that as a child by the time they get to adulthood that seems relatively normal someone makes an unreasonable request of them and they've been faced with lots of unreasonable requests throughout their life which they're expected to comply with they're not necessarily going to know whether it's okay to say no to somebody or might not feel comfortable saying no to somebody else and that really creates this perfect storm of vulnerability and a lot of the research around mate crimes, some fantastic research, has looked at kind of, you know, which factors make people more vulnerable and what we can maybe do about it. But one thing the literature really hasn't done so much is talk to people about their experiences and find out what kind of things they do think are normal in friendships and what kind of things are positive and what kind of things are negative and what people might do about that. So... If someone did start experiencing, you know, abuse from someone they classified as friend, would they know who to go to? How would they react? Would they talk to another friend, a family member? Um, would they approach the police? And I think these things are really important to know if we're going to look at what to do. When I did my talk at Discover a couple of months ago, at the end of the talk, I said, you know, there are a couple of different things we can do with this information. One of them is we can look at how to provide support for people, which is great. And we can look at, you know, maybe talking to kids, autistic and non-autistic, about relationships and friendships and what is normal and healthy and maybe what's not. The other thing is the much grander aim of trying to change society's view of people who are disabled. Um, and that's, yeah, it's a lot harder work. But I think it's something that we might need to do if we're going to really look at why some people in society think it's okay to victimise people because they're different. Um, one of the things... Um that I found, and I, I did um, fill in the survey uh, quite a while ago um, around this study. Um, I had previously come across made crime, but it was very much training from um, a, a really good um, learning disability um, advocate network. 
but it was just very much um it was that victims had um you know some kind of cognitive um disability and that you know people will steal the money or you know move into the house and it didn't really capture the nuance um so you know those things actually when I was filling in I, I can remember when I first got my house and I was living on my own for the first time you know and I was, oh, all of this freedom and suddenly in, you know in the middle of a city and um, I'd started dating and I had somebody move into my house and I didn't want them there <laughs> and I was just too embarrassed and it was that actually the embarrassment um sort of added that extra layer of vulnerability and that well how do I ask this person to leave and I don't want you know I like my own space I always joke that um, if I ever was in a serious relationship I would try and buy the house next door <laughs> so that we can spend an awful lot of time together but you know <laughs> I can close the door for an hour's rest. That was something that quite a few of the people we spoke to said so they said there's there's a lot of shame if they found out they'd been duped I think was the word that was used they would feel really ashamed of that um, and again that does it adds a whole other layer of of problems on top. I remember t- at college there was um, somebody who I thought was a friend who would constantly ask me um, because I lived um, near the town or oh, could you can you pick this up that up or you know I need this calculator or you know these fancy pens that you can uh, rub out for doing exams and things like that and when and I'd sort of oh absolutely fine you know 25 minutes out of my day and then I'd hand them over and just there'd be this awkward pause and they wouldn't give me the money for them and then I just think have I just is it just that I haven't understood properly or were they expecting that because it was only two three pounds that was a gift and it just it was, wasn't until it built up that actually um, another friend had sort of said what, what on earth are you doing? <laughs> you know, they're only asking you because they know that you will and nobody else. Um, so I'm very, very thankful to the person who spotted that. Yeah, and things like that, do, it does make me think, like, what what do you do for people who don't have those friends who will step in or don't have somebody to talk to about it? So if you don't have someone else saying, actually, that's, that's really inappropriate behaviour, how do you spot that yourself and what do you do to get yourself out of the situation? It's about maybe knowing sometimes your own vulnerabilities. Nobody likes to think about that. It isn't a pleasant thing to think about. Um, But being aware of that and being aware of things that maybe you might not pick up on, I think is actually a good thing. I think that's, it's really good if if you do have other people in your life who can be that kind of stopgap and that sort of like, you know, watchful eye. Um, And obviously if people don't have that, there are lots of places that you can go. I think, you know, certainly... If you if you phoned the the National Autistic Society helpline and you were worried about friends, I'm sure that somebody would would at least you know give you a listening ear and and you know if somebody is asking to borrow your car who you've met at the gym, <laughs> would hopefully say no or you know indeed no, local support groups or you know the, there's a really good autistic community on Twitter and Facebook. There's loads of places where you can you can get some really solid advice from from other people, um, and I think. It's important not to be overcautious as well, and that part of friendship is that bit of give and take and, and helping each other out. But it's when it becomes that sort of um, repetitive, one-sided, but also this escalating thing, because rarely does it start with a big thing. It will start with something small, and then when people see that they can get away with it, they'll start to ask for more and more. It does. It, it builds. It doesn't start off with a ridiculously large quest. Like, can I have £5,000 from you, please? It's like, oh, can I borrow a fiver? Um, I forgot my wallet. 
and none of us want to see the bad in other people I think that's it's something that people don't want to do you want to be optimistic and think of other people as, as inherently good and the idea that some people really aren't uh, tends to come as a bit of a shock sometimes if, if you are a victim of this and you, you do realize it it's nothing to be ashamed of actually to sign that you are a really trusting loving person and that don't change just just be a little bit wary just you know um re- you know listen to the people who tell you rather than sort of sort of um sort, sort of um blocking that out and only seeing the good in people but at the same time don't close down and guard yourself too much it's it, it's it's that sort of subtle balance isn't it this this is going to sound all like airy fairy and lovely but i think also as there is so much negative discourse sometimes around autism and around autistic people and I think it can lead some people especially if they haven't really been involved in the autistic communities like had autistic friends or known other autistic people that they get this really internalized idea that there must be something wrong with them and that the way they are somehow inherently bad and that they don't deserve any better and I think really encouraging people to recognize their own positive traits and characteristics and thinking of themselves in a in a really valued way realizing that you are somebody of value and there are things about you that other people will love and really enjoy um and will really feel like they're you know they're benefiting from having a friendship with you just from spending time with you and knowing you i think knowing that that helps some way towards negating some of the effects of something like this and realizing that actually you deserve good friendships. And I guess um, that brings us on to the next topic, which I know everybody's <laughs> eagerly awaiting for, and that is the um, sex. And you've been doing some work on BDSM, and I know it's not autism specific, but you had a really good autis- um, response from autistic people. Um, and I believe that you're sort of looking to develop that a little bit further in the future. So would you like to tell us a little bit about what that study was about, <laughs> apart from the obvious? <laughs> yeah, so this is this is very, I guess, left of field for me um, in terms of stuff that I usually do, but it's, it's a more personal interest. So uh, I have been running a study looking at emotion recognition in people who engage in BDSM. And so BDSM is an acronym um, for bondage, discipline, domination, submission, sadism, and masochism. Um, So people who engage in a range of kinky activities. And the idea for the study came about from reading a paper on body language. And they they had faces they'd taken from a database um, who were people at peak intensity pleasure Um, and they put these faces onto bodies of people who either were really excited and were winning a point in tennis or had jammed their finger in a door and had really hurt themselves and they found that it was the information from the body um, that was driving whether people judged them to be in pain or experiencing pleasure it wasn't the face the face in isolation it was really difficult to tell the difference and I sat reading this paper and I thought oh I wonder if anyone's looked at this and said or masochists Um, and no one had and so I thought to be really interesting. So I started a pilot study uh, with Dr. Sophie Hodgetts, who's another lecturer here at Sunderland, and a PhD student, Dan Taylor. And we had um, a kind of a, a scale for people to answer how engaged in different aspects of BDSM they were. So we expect that some people will be into domination and submission, some people will be into sadism and masochism, some people will be into all of those things, and some people might be into just one aspect. So we really wanted to be able to fine tune and and pick out the different aspects of that. So we 
had that aspect of it. We also had a trait empathy questionnaire. We used the uh, IRI, essentially a measure of trait empathy with different skills, including perspective taking. Um, and then we had a set of faces um, from a bunch of people who we had taken from uh, some interesting interesting websites. So some of the faces were taken from the uh, shoulder pain database and that had kind of screen capped just purely just facial information from people who had had some shoulder pain, capped at peak intensity. And then the other faces we took from the same website that was used in the original study um, by Aviezer and colleagues, and that was the it's a website called Beautiful Agony. Um, it's an art project. It started off as people submitting themselves, engaging in self-pleasuring activities, but only showing their face. I think when I was, it's hard for the for, on the podcast a to see how red my face is, but also, um, I, when I I did this questionnaire, and so when you're saying it just covers the face, it didn't even show the hairline or anything. It was just pretty much eyes, nose, and mouth. And I just I remember sending you a message saying saying I just it's it's like Humpty Dumpty, <laughs> Humpty Dumpty having a having a um. A rather raunchy party, but it was very, very hard to tell the difference for me. Well, I think so. I think most people found it quite hard to tell the difference. So we we showed people these faces, and we thought, well, it'll be really interesting to see whether people who engage in BDSM will be better or worse at this than people who don't. So maybe there's some kind of nuance in the way that they code pain and pleasure on other people's faces. Maybe there's more overlap in the way that they experience those things. Um, and so we put the questionnaire out, but. At the last moment, I decided I wanted to add a couple of extra demographic questions in, just asking if anyone taking part had a diagnosis of a mental health condition or a developmental difference, like autism or ADHD. Um, And that ended up being the most interesting part of the data, really, that we got from the study. So we found that 50% of our sample had a diagnosis of either a mental health condition or a developmental difference. and we had so out of out of that fifty percent of people, ten um, percent of those participants were autistic, and so I obviously was really interested in this. Um, and so if you look at that in terms of a representation of the autistic community uh, in the overall sample of participants that took part, not just the the participants that were in that fifty percent, that's kind of a a standard representation of what you would expect autistic people in in the general population then mapping directly on um, to the kind of the representation in this very specific sample. And I got thinking about this and I got thinking about the different aspects of BDSM. So typically BDSM has lots of very sensory characteristics. So things like bondage, and kind of sensory play is very much based on sensory experience. So that feeling of compression or stability on the skin and the feeling of maybe rough touch um, or particularly hard pressure. Um, There are also aspects of ritual and rules to BDSM. And I thought some of these really overlap um, with what we might classify as autistic traits. And this this is really interesting. I wonder if autistic people are more likely to be into BDSM than people who are kind of in the neurotypical population. So I did a little bit of digging around and so far I've only really, really been able to come up with one one piece of research on this. It's from a researcher called uh, Rachel Boucher in Muncie, I think, in Indiana. And uh, she'd done a lovely thesis 
looking at aspects of autistic traits and BDSM and did find a relationship with certain certain aspects. So things like the sensory experiences really heavily overlapped. Um, I'm not going to go into too much detail because I, even though you can't see my face, I think it will burn far too hot to be able to really describe her results fully. But no, I thought I thought it was really interesting. And so I was thinking about kind of the initial demographic information and and this other set of information from her study. And I was thinking about something that came out, again, of the Discover conference, um, and uh, a friend of mine who had met at, a, at another conference previously, saying that, you know, there's, there's lots of really great research looking at what we can do to improve autistic people's lives, looking at things that maybe aren't so great and how to improve that. But who's looking at what's awesome and what autistic people really enjoy and what really enriches their lives? Maybe we should have a little bit more of that. And I thought this is this is one thing that would be really nice to look at is a there's not a lot of research out there into sex and sexuality and experience of sexuality on autistic people. Um, it's a growing area, but there's still not a lot. And there's, as I said, barely anything on kink um, and BDSM. And so we've just submitted ethics for a qualitative project to look at essentially experience of BDSM and autistic adults, um, what motivates them, what they enjoy, what they get out of it. Um, and I think that would be, it'd be really nice to look look into in more depth. It fits really nicely with um, one of the chats I had at the Discover conference um, with Isabella Verholst um, uh, around um, sensory experiences. She was looking at anxiety, but she was more so that again with everything um, in the autism community there's a lot of diversity and some people um, are hypersensitive some people are hyposensitive and and actually um, it'd be interesting to see whether people who are um, sort of sensory seekers and there's definitely a lot of us there and and sometimes actually it can change over time and it can change with different sensory inputs Uh, it'd be interesting to see whether the people who the autistic people who engage with BDSM are sensory seekers as well yeah, and I, I suspect that there will be quite a nice relationship with that there. If you think about something like weighted blankets and relate that, you can relate that very easily to the experience you would get in bondage. Um, so what are the, the next steps going forward with this with this project? So once we have ethics, um, it's essentially to find some people to take part. So we'd like to talk to or any autistic adults, really, and just hear from people about their experiences and also find out whether there's anything that they would really like us to ask or would really like to know about themselves. Um, because I am trying to involve more kind of participatory action in my research. It's something that, as, I guess, a lone researcher, I find quite difficult sometimes. Um, I'm not part of a team here at Sunderland. Uh, I am kind of the the token autism researcher by myself and I don't have any funding at the moment. And so kind of, I don't have a big grant in which I can get a group together and and pay people, but having people's input um, and finding out about what they really think is important and would like to know, that's something that I'm very keen on. So if people are interested in either the Make Crime study or um, the BDSM, I know that... um, for May Crime, it's it's currently submitted to a journal and hoping to hear soon. You can find Amy on Twitter. Uh, what's your uh, Twitter handle? Very exotic, at Dr. Amy Pearson. <laughs> there we go. And um, don't be too risky. <laughs> I'm in a book, Mark Stokes, who's a researcher from Australia who focuses on gender and sexuality and autism. 
So I asked him what we're learning from research. One of the things that uh, I, I kind of feel bad about is years ago we used to talk about uh, sexuality and autism being dysfunctional. Uh, and I've only in probably the last five years come to realise that something I should have known years ago from my basic psychological training is that when you suppress a behaviour, uh, it tends to become expressed in other ways that are dysfunctional. So if you have an autistic uh, young man and you tell him, uh, look, you can't involve yourself in that, you can't have uh, a girlfriend or a boyfriend or a sexual relationship because you've got autism, um, and God knows some people, teachers, parents, siblings and other people will do this. When you do this to a person, uh, and you suppress their sexual behaviour, they still need a sexual outlet and they start finding inappropriate sexual outlets. When you allow people to have a sexual life, they start finding appropriate sexual outlets. And appropriate sexual outlets aren't necessarily what is said to be good in the Bible. Uh, it, appropriate sexual outlets are, are outlets where you treat the other party with respect love and consideration for their needs as well as your own uh, and I think in the last few years that the community has started to allow and to recognise that um, all human beings have a right to sexuality uh, including those who happen to have a, a label of autism associated with them uh, and as a consequence sexuality is becoming much more of an open and obvious topic but what's not happening is giving the autistic person information about how to do that. Um, and it's, it's not by some malevolent doctor evil scheme that this is happening. It, it, it's because um, parents, one, and teachers, two, don't know how to talk to adolescents, whether they be typically developing or uh, on the autistic spectrum, um, about sex uh, because they all get a bit giggly about it and the parent or the teacher's going oh yeah uh, what was that the clitoris oh, oh, oh yeah it's sort of there yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you find maybe um, oh ask your father um, and the, the, tr the trouble with that approach is is that leaves an autistic person completely unsupported. Whereas a typically developing child goes to school and he says to his mate, mate, you heard of this thing called the clitoris? Oh, yeah, 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 I saw that in a magazine. Um, and they build knowledge through their peer network. Um, in a study we published uh, back in 2007 with uh, Newton Cow and uh, 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 myself, actually looked at the sources of learning. And typically developing kids learn sexuality mainly through their peers. Children with autism and adolescents with autism, their chief source of learning is the media, uh, pornography, uh, and, and that is a bad place to learn about sexuality, no matter who you are. It might be an interesting place to learn about sexuality, but it's a bad place to learn about sexuality because it's dramatised sexual behaviour for the purposes of titillation, not normal human sexual interaction. Uh, and the other source of learning that they have is from their parents. And so what happens is, what's the clitoris, Mum? Oh, ask your dad! Goes on and 
the young man with autism or the young woman with autism is not informed. Now, when I mention young women, there's another problem. Young women with autism, as they start going through uh, puberty and, and, and getting uh, onset of their first periods, they're often not being prepared by their mother for that. And as a consequence, suddenly she's got blood coming out between her legs and it's terrifying. Her. What's happening? What, what, am I bleeding to death? Am I going to die? Yeah. Uh, and no, of course not. He's not going to. But it's in, then she, she feels a fool and she feels embarrassed because, Lord forbid, other girls will not sit there and, you know, treat her like, oh, well, you know, no one told you, darling, this is what's going to happen. No, they will pick on her. And if she's in a co-educational environment, God, boys will be just brutal to the poor creature. And, and, and then um, boys have, have, have similar sorts of things. Boys, of course... Uh, at around the same age start having nocturnal um, emissions i.e. what most boys call wet dreams and um, they feel like oh god I'm wetting the bed again and it's, it's terrifying I mean, of course no one's told them that you know you are suddenly becoming a sexual being and you are going to have sexual responses and because you know mum and dad don't want to talk about you know ejaculation well sorry you have to because he needs to understand that he's going to get uh, nocturnal emissions and ejaculatory responses that uh, will occur at night as his body relaxes. Um, so all these sexual functions are not explained to these kids. Now, there's just the basic sexual functions. Then we start talking about the really complex stuff, like the how do you talk to that person that I'm interested in? How do I know, uh, am I gay, am I not gay? Um, because I kind of like that boy over there. Does that mean I'm gay? I must be gay. And no, actually, it doesn't mean you're gay. It just means you might like that boy. Frequently, young adolescents who are typically developing have, and a lot of them might talk about this, but they will have had uh, a homosexual experience in their early sexual forays. And if you're on the autistic spectrum, that might be the defining experience that says to you, oh, I must be homosexual. Well, actually, no, not. You're just a human being, and you've just had a homosexual experience, that's all. And, but no one's going to talk to them about that. Uh, and then we come to the really difficult stuff, which is the actual uh, the interplay of people who might be sexually interested in each other. Uh, how do you flirt with somebody? How do you respond to flirting by somebody? What is appropriate levels of flirting? Can I touch this person? When can I touch this person? Is it all right for me to tell somebody I really like the clothes they're wearing? Is it all right for me to really tell, to, to tell somebody I really think they're hot? Is it all right for me to tell somebody I want to sleep with them? And all of these things require really uh, in-depth uh, guidance for the young person with autism and they don't get it. And so what happens? So they're flummoxed and floundering and they have no idea what to do. So there are things, there are courses around, uh, for instance Kirsten Grieve Lord's um, Tackling Teenage training program uh, is an excellent training program for teenagers uh, and t- teaches them all about sexual uh, matters and uh, transitions to uh, through puberty and transitions to early a- a- adulthood and, and, and has some really good values. Of course, some cultures will find that extremely challenging. You know, you're not going to teach my 13-year-old all about where the clitoris is. Um, well, why the hell not? She's got one. Um, and But... A lot of parents find that really difficult. Yeah. And then uh, a lot of parents have uh, quite understandable uh, uh, 
social moral uh, constraints about sexuality and frequently found it inside their religiosity, which I'm not criticising. Some people's choices about religion are quite meaningful and valid for them, although they might not agree with others. Uh, And we have to be respectful of that. And religions don't want uh, sex talked about uh, because they feel that um, it can lead to promiscuity. Um, The thing that our studies are showing is, in fact, that if you don't talk to your young autistic uh, women about sexuality, that, the failure to talk, the failure to protect them by giving them information leads to promiscuity. If you try and stop their sexual behaviour by suppressing it, it leads to extremely inappropriate sexuality and extremely inappropriate promiscuity. If you just don't tell them about it, it leads to promiscuity. So the only way you can protect her is you provide her really good, clear guidance and information about what is appropriate, how to behave appropriately, and how to behave healthily and safely. So, and the same happens with boys. And boys, if you don't teach them uh, appropriately, they too will start to behave inappropriately. And frequently we get uh, young men uh, behaving uh, um, in, in ways that come into in interaction with the law where they'll be arrested for, classically, for stalking. And because they have no idea of how else to get a girl other than to follow her around. Uh, and eventually she'll notice me. Well, she noticed you a long time ago and she's terrified of you and she thinks you're going to do something. And then she tells her brother, her father, uh, and, and another study we published looked at this and we found that when these young men were confronted by increasing levels of violence um, and aggression to protect the, the, the female that he was interested in uh, by uh, another male from her family, he'll persist longer. Because it's one of the classic responses in autism that if we first don't succeed, try again because you just got it wrong. So try again. And it, you, must, you must just do it, practice harder and you'll get it right, uh, even though you don't change anything. And, of course, the definition of madness is to do the same thing again and, and, and expecting it to work when it didn't work in the first time. And it's just complete madness. But not madness in the sense that there's psychiatric madness in the sense that it's just going to fail and get them into much greater trouble. So in a very, very long-winded essay in answer to your question, that these are the issues involved in sexuality. And nothing that my research program has done cannot be seen from first principles if you fail to teach your children well. You have to teach them well. You have to talk about sexuality openly, honestly, and not pure, you know, puritanically, and and not in a, a puerile form, uh, focusing on silly things. You have to do it in such a way uh, a, 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 as to allow the adolescent to develop a healthy respect for all people around them. I'm here with Dori Zena, who is an individual couple and family therapist who specialises in autism. She's based in Toronto and she also founded and facilitates a women's autism support group. Um, hi, Dori. Hi, Laura. It's great to be here today. So, um, first of all, can you just tell us a little bit about your work? 
Absolutely. So I'm a social worker by training, and I work with individuals, couples, families, parents, all of whom um, are on the autism spectrum. And I love my work because all day long I get to talk to autistic people about their lives and try to help them find ways to make it more hopeful and functional for them. Um, I also uh, specialize in girls and women, and I run a women's support group called Asperfem, and recently published a couple of articles on the uh, therapeutic framework that I have for working with autistic women called Invest. Fantastic. That sounds absolutely brilliant and fascinating. And in your work, I mean, we're going to kind of concentrate on relationships here today. So in your work as a couple therapist, do you often work with people who are in a kind of mixed neurotype relationship? So kind of one person's autistic and the other person isn't. Yeah, it's a really interesting um, circumstance. Sometimes you'll have uh, two people with autistic traits or two people on the spectrum. You have someone who maybe has more of an ADHD flavor and someone else who's on the spectrum. Um, and oftentimes you'll get a pairing where you have someone who is on the spectrum paired with a very um, hypersensitive, uh, empathetic partner. And uh, that nurturing partnership seems to work out well for both partners. Interesting. And do you think um, that there's a particular gender mix that works? So, for example, do you think that NT neurotypical um, men find autistic women easier than neurotypical women find autistic men kind of thing? Or do you think that kind of non-binary people kind of sort of get on better? Or, or do you think it just is kind of on a case-by-case basis? Yeah, I think in my experience it's more of a case-by-case basis. So what I've noticed in my practice and in research is that gender is much more fluid and less um, in terms of conformist when it comes to gender identities. So you have people on the spectrum who are uh, very non-defined in how their gender rules are and how they see themselves. Um, I've also worked with heterosexual couples, so it's, it really varies. Okay, that's really interesting. And do you think that there are any kind of common problems that come out of mixed neurotype relationships? I think the first one is the misattribution of behavior. So what happens is if an individual on the spectrum is feeling overwhelmed or having um, or confused around the communication that's happening within the relationship, the way they respond to that might be to uh, seek some solace, take some space, to try to calm down and understand that better. That's often interpreted by the partner as rejection, that the person doesn't want to process what's going on and that they're running away, when in fact it's just the way they cope and deal. So if you can really uh, work with the couple to understand how each person optimally, optimally sorry, um, communicates what their communication style is, uh, whether it's um, communicating in writing, communicating face-to-face but in parallel, situations like driving together in a car or walking together while walking the dog. Um, You need to really help partners come up with an optimal way for both people to communicate effectively and understand the rationale behind the behavior so it's not personalized. Okay, so the parallel thing, is that to kind of take eye contact out of the equation? Absolutely. So the eye contact um, makes the communication very intense. It also can be extremely distracting uh, for the person on the spectrum to have to look at the emotional intensity of their partner um, and then also think about and concentrate on what they want to say and focus on their own needs at the same time. So by going side by side, and especially with motion, like driving or walking, it can relax their system. 
and they're able to um, engage more openly in communication. Um, and do you think that um, relationships, I, I know we talked about things being on a case-by-case basis, but do you think relationships work better if it's kind of between two autistic people? Or do you think it works better if it's an autistic person and a neurotypical person? Or do you think there are specific things that come up with each of those types of relationship? What I've seen in relationships with two autistic people that works really well is when both partners have a sense of their space and their needs. So if each person has an interest that they're really passionate about that they'd like to spend their time in, by giving each other that space to pursue that and not interpreting it as a personal rejection, but just as a way that this person needs to grow and maybe restore themselves, um, I find that that autistic dynamic can work very well. I mean, the key to any relationship is really open communication. So just saying, knowing what you need and being able to put it into words or verbalize it to your partner in another way. So in autistic relationships, can work well, but it can also be dramatic. Sometimes you'll have someone's um, stimming or, or sensory issues will clash or collide with the other person. So you have one partner who has a, a need for quiet and a need for calm, and you have another partner who constantly is seeking stimulation and is, is loud and making noise. And honestly, these partnerships have a hard time working out because it's just a clash in how they process their environment. That makes um, perfect sense. Sorry, carry on. No, that's okay. I was just going to say, in terms of a, an NT and an autistic relationship, um, what I find the biggest barrier, I guess, in any relationship like this is how much the other person um, really needs of the other person. So if there's a neurotypical person who is an extrovert who really is craving social interaction and their autistic partner is someone who prefers um, that quiet time and being on their own, it can become a bit of an issue um, in terms of their preferences for how they spend time together on the weekends or in the evenings. Um, But these are things that you need to sort out pretty early on in the relationship. So maybe it's okay that the neurotypical person who loves going out and socializing has a separate social life outside of the marriage, and then they come home and they're quiet together and they do their joint activities together and enjoy each other without having to fulfill every single need within the partnership. Yeah, I'm I think that that's kind of pretty good advice for any relationship. I think that I, I certainly noticed my neurotypical girlfriends that they expect their husbands or boyfriends to provide absolutely everything for them. Yeah. And often I've noticed with my female friends that when they have a problem, um, I was thinking very specifically about a friend I was talking to the other day who had a work problem, and she wanted to kind of go through that problem numerous times around in circles kind of looking at every permutation but saying the same things over and over again in a different way and that's really cool to do it to a girlfriend I was really happy to talk to her but she said that her husband was getting cross because he couldn't bear the fact that it was just the same thing over and over again and her husband's neurotypical as well so I think that that's something that kind of you know I I think that some of those things are kind of common in all relationships aren't they? Mm -hmm. I think it has to do with compatibility as opposed to neurotype. Yeah yeah exactly exactly yeah um, do you think that there are any issues around sex that are specific to autistic people? Yes, for okay. sure. Um, and it's different for each person, again. Of course. But um, for some people, so women on the spectrum tend to be very highly uh, sensory sensitive, and this can really come out in the bedroom as well. So certain touches that are meant to be intimate might feel quite painful uh, or really uncomfortable. And... Um, just a lot of women I've worked with have vaginismus or have discomfort around penetration. 
So it, it can take a while for um, someone to feel comfortable physically in the bedroom. That being said, there's other other couples I work with who uh, immediately are intimate right from the get-go and they find it very pleasurable and are sort of enjoy sex I mean, uh, greatly. But I think sensory is the biggest issue when it comes to sex. The other is expectations. So really clarifying uh, how often is it expected. Uh, one couple I was working with, a partner on the spectrum, expected to have sex with his wife every single day. And, you know, they have a family, they're busy people, they work. That's not always realistic, right? And it's really important to be able to clarify well, what works for both of us and how many times a week are we going to be having sex if we're, if we're having it on such a regular basis so that everybody's on the same page because otherwise it can end up uh, leading to resentment yeah. and other issues. I, mean, I kind of joined a couple of Facebook groups quite a few years ago when I was researching my book and it tended to be women who were married to men who either, they, who either were diagnosed autistic or, these, or the women kind of presumed that they were. Um, and they were quite interesting talking about that sort of thing because we had those kind of conversations um, and they were just they kind of tended to say things like oh it's so unromantic you know if we say we're going to have sex on a Monday Wednesday and Friday that's just so unromantic you know and mm-hmm. so I think it so um, so I think it's interesting that you're saying that that um, that that works for some couples because to me it makes perfect sense it just does but um well, some people on the spectrum really like to know what's what's coming, right? What's expected yeah. of them, their routines, and that really puts them at ease so they can just sit back and enjoy the experience. And when something is uh, jumped on them unexpectedly, that might increase anxiety and just make it very difficult to have an enjoyable time together. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't yeah. mean that every couple has to have planned sexual experiences, but for some people, that's really helpful. Yeah, that makes perfect, perfect sense. And do you think that um, autistic sexuality is different to neurotypical sexuality? Well, the studies have shown that um, autistic individuals tend to have a more of a non-heterosexual identity. I think it's up to 70%, a very high number. So what I'm seeing in the people I work with is just more of an openness around sexuality. They're less um, impacted by social norms around this heterosexual normative that we should all grow up First of all, that we should all grow up and have a partner and get married, but that partner should be someone of the opposite sex. And I think part of this relates to their own gender identities. That um, I've had people tell me before that growing up, until they hit puberty, they didn't think of themselves as a girl or as a boy. They just were. They were a person. And it wasn't until their body started to change that they became embodied themselves. And oftentimes, uh, in the girls and women I work with, this is a very difficult period because their body's changing, they don't know what to expect, and they don't like the changes that are happening. And this causes some um, discomfort with their gender identity, which sometimes gets resolved, and other times people take on a more open um, mentality. Yeah. And in terms of... uh, Just just in terms of the the sexual preferences, uh, one client who approached me working together, the reason for getting together was she wanted to communicate better with her, her husband's girlfriend. So in this case, it was a polyamorous relationship, and she wanted to be able to have better communication skills with her husband's partner. So I've certainly seen a whole permutation and combination of relationships that I hadn't prior to this work. I've been exposed to all kinds of uh, lingo, like demisexual, yeah, um, I... so someone that's attracted to personalities, and sapiosexual, like being attracted to someone's intellect or intelligence. 
So there's a lot more creativity in sexuality in autistic people than in the general population. Yeah, I mean, I find it really, really weird the way people can kind of walk down the street, see someone and go, Phew. I just, I just do not understand that. It just totally confuses me. So, um, and I think that lots of kind of lots of women I've spoken to um, that for research kind of feel um, very similarly. Um, I think it's interesting the kind of social norms thing not mattering so much. Do you think, on on the subject of puberty, um, do you Mm -hmm. think that there is, um, do you think that autistic girls are more likely to find themselves in difficult situations? So do you think they're kind of like, more likely to be exploited by um, either kind of adults or boys of their own age or or girls of their own age, obviously? Um, Mm -hmm. I just, I seem to kind of anecdotally come across that quite a lot. I I think what I come across is is, um, particularly women and girls, but that's probably because I talk to more women and girls who say that um, they've had kind of um, very difficult situations where things have happened to them because they were able to kind of be separated from the herd in a way that neurotypical girls aren't. And also because they didn't have the language skills to communicate what was happening to Mm -hmm. them. Mm-hmm. I have to say that this is actually one of the most difficult parts of the work that I do. Um, it's definitely true that autistic girls and women are at greater risk for abuse and manipulation and sexual exploitation. And even within my own practice now, I've had young teens who have been lured into uh, sexual assault online or who have been uh, sent naked pictures to strangers online. Like It's really scary, actually, what's happening and trying to figure out how to protect these girls and women so that it doesn't become something that really shapes their life in a negative way. But I think, like, well, why is this happening, right? So part of it is um, the social skill piece. So um, girls and women, well, people on the spectrum have a hard time judging character and picking up on the intentions of others. And oftentimes they assume that people have good intentions. They really see the good in people. And so they fall into traps. Um, not knowing that they're entering into dangerous situations. I think they also don't always know what's appropriate and inappropriate in different social situations, and they always take their cues from others. They're watching others to see what they're doing. So if an adult or a peer is leading them to a certain behavior, they think it's appropriate. And there's often that delayed processing where maybe on their instinct, on a gut level, they feel like something's wrong, but they don't tune into that until it's too late and something's happened. Uh, One young woman that I spoke to who was raped as well, she said that she didn't know she could say no. She didn't even realize that saying no was an option in a sexual situation. So I think it's a combination of, of well, it's largely based on social skills and then a lack of um, education on teaching girls and women no. Particularly, I I remember growing up as a teenage girl, Boys would tell you all sorts of nonsense that I absolutely, totally believed. So, so I, yeah, so I think it is about that kind. I think it is, you know, it is about people like you, um, people like Carly Jones, who does um, some amazing work with teenage girls, but also just kind of, um, I, I just think we just need to be more, way more open talking about these things. Absolutely. I think the other piece of it is that sometimes, like one of the young women I worked with, she, 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 enjoyed the sensation of touching herself and she was 
doing that and she was trying to involve other people in doing it too because it felt good and for her it was very much a sensory seeking pleasure seeking behavior she didn't understand that it fell under this other social category of sexual behavior right and with a bit of education about who it's appropriate to be sexual with and who it isn't and where and when yeah it really helped her make good choices right because otherwise she's putting herself at risk yeah, no, exactly. I, I have parents contact me quite a lot and um, and often they'll say, you know, my child is doing this. And it's just like, well, if you say, you know, that's fine to do that, but do it in your bedroom with the door shut, then, then they'll... Mm-hmm. Then they'll it, it is like just clear communication. How do you know whether something's okay unless someone tells you it is? Yes, and I think with people on the spectrum, like you said, you have to be explicit. And sometimes you don't realize uh, what you need to be explicit about until it's too late. So that's why, you know, when I'm working with younger people, so I work across a lifespan. Nine is about the youngest age and work up to people in their, in their 70s. But I start talking really young about you know, bodies and body changes and, and touch and you know, who is okay to touch and who isn't and where, because it's, it's really important to give that education when they're ready to hear it and when their body is changing. I think the hard thing is that sometimes their body changes way before their social development and their emotional development comes, and that's when it gets tricky. Yeah, and if you're not, I, I remember people being like, wow, what earth is happening? This is a disaster. And I kind of did think that gender thing that you talked about, I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't think of myself as a gender, I thought of myself as a person. And I guess to a degree, mm-hmm. that's still the case with me. I don't understand yeah. my female neurotypical friends. I remember one, yeah. one of my friends had um, some kind of surgery. I think she had breast cancer surgery. And she kind of said, I feel less of a woman. And that just, I literally cannot get my head around that, what that means. Mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. I just, I mean, on a kind of intellectual level, obviously I can be supportive of something like that but on an emotional level I cannot I just don't understand how that feels so but I also wonder if that relates to sort of the mind-body disconnect that you see sometimes with people on the spectrum part of being interoception difficulties so just difficulties tuning yeah. in to what your body is doing and registering it but even just like you exist on more of a cerebral um, sensory level than on a, a physical level for yeah people. yeah no that yeah that's definitely true for me totally mm-hmm. um um, okay, so my next question is, do you think that um, in a kind of mixed neurotype relationship, um, one one neurotype is more likely to become stressed than the other? Or do you think it just depends on the situation? My personal opinion is that people on the spectrum are taxed from the minute they get up in the morning. So it's not like yeah. they're starting with the same number of spoons as everybody else, right? Yeah, that is very So true. depending on their sleep and their pain and their, their sensory and just all of the little and big T traumas that they've been through, uh, they're starting at a deficit. So I think that any additional layers of stress that they experience, it's going to be experienced in a more profound way. So I would say they're, they're um, yeah, they're at a disadvantage that way yeah. compared to their neurotypical peer or partner. I always think of it, was it Ginger Rogers who said everything that you're doing but backwards and in heels? It always feels like that to me with kind of the difference mm-hmm. between kind of being autistic and being neurotypical in the same situation. Mm-hmm. Um, great. And then, just finally, two very final questions. Um, any tips for a neurotypical person who is in a relationship with an autistic person? Yeah, I think the first one, um, utmost, is to treat your partner with complete respect and take the time to understand how their brain works, how they see the world. Be very patient with them if you notice that they're getting overwhelmed. And maybe sometimes people lash out when they're overwhelmed. Uh, understand that it's not pers- it's not a personal attack, but it's just that person trying to cope the best they can with the circumstances. 
as I mentioned before, open communication is so important. So if you think that someone has done something um, and you're feeling hurt about it, clarify it. Because that person on the spectrum probably has no idea that you're upset about something and why. And oftentimes, a lot of the little things can be clarified before they turn into big things. Yeah. The other thing is just to, sorry, yeah, I was just thinking that to be mindful of yourself and how you enter into the space of someone on the spectrum, just be mindful about how your existence impacts them. Um, and just be open and be loving. I mean, partners that on the spectrum are often incredibly loyal and loving and thoughtful and um, giving, but sometimes they just need to be told what you're thinking because they might not pick up on it on their own that's great and then kind of um sort of the same question but the other way around any tips for an autistic person who is in a relationship with a neurotypical person be patient (laughs) (laughs) because you're complex beings (laughs) i think it's just understand that you're wired differently uh, and they may perceive the world and understand the world in a different way Uh, recognize that they may have more energy than you do to do things and that you might have to make sacrifices that they don't and that's okay and it's okay to lean on your partner and this goes both ways right I mean partnerships really develop with vulnerability and support going in each direction so it's okay for the autistic person to lean on the neurotypical person and vice versa uh, for support um and then just try your best to be open about what you're experiencing because sometimes um, I find autistic people can be hard to read themselves. They might not be um, letting the person know how they feel through their facial expression mm. or through their words. So try to come up with a way to communicate with your partner that you feel comfortable with uh, during difficult times. So in your experience, story, um, how um, do the couples that you work with, how have they met in the first place? Very different places. I found the best way uh, for people to meet is through shared experience. So people who've gone in like a hiking club, for instance, and they meet someone who really enjoys the outdoors or an anime club, and then they both end up enjoying anime together. Uh, a lot of people are, are meeting online. I never thought they would end up there. Sometimes their their friends get them there or they get, get there and they're able to find someone who is a similar match online. Um, setups can be really helpful if you have a, a friend who knows what you're like and can be able to find someone with a similar temperament or someone with a good fit. Uh, that can be helpful too. But I think a lot of, of people on the spectrum are getting out there and, and being in relationships and finding partners that are good for them and sometimes finding partners that uh, are not. Like like everyone, I guess, in a way. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've, um, I've been married for a long time, so I'm not really kind of doing dating, um, but it looks absolutely terrifying to me. Although, I do see loads of relationships starting on Twitter, and that tends to be very sweet. I find that really interesting, too, and it just goes to show how people are connecting over ideas as opposed to the way exactly. one looks, let's say. Yeah, exactly. And also, in a way, it's quite old-fashioned when you think about it, because... Um, you know, people uh, would would have gone on loads and loads and loads and loads of dates before they ended up in bed together, and they would have kind of really got to know each other in a way that doesn't really seem to happen in real-world dating now. Well, one of the things I've seen that's been really interesting is online dating from a distance. So you'll have people who have been communicating on a daily basis through video chat in different countries, 
right? And yeah. then eventually they might meet and they might get together or they might even never meet, but they still consider each other uh, to be in a committed relationship. Yeah. Boyfriend and girlfriend or vice versa. And are you yeah. seeing that more with autistic people than with neurotypical people? Or do you think it's just generally a kind of phenomenon? Oh, I think it's hard to say. I mean, certainly I see it in the people I work with, but I don't okay. talk to a lot of neurotypical teens these days. <laughs> Um, lucky you <laughs> no that's horrible uh, I didn't mean that at all um so um and what about the pace of relationships do you think that the pace is different for autistic people than for neurotypical people so I've seen two phases uh, one is where someone gets to know each other over a period of years and they build this comfort with a friendship and very, very slowly baby steps over time the dynamic starts to shift and then there's a of where are we at and where do we stand and then they do that and they, they rejig and that happens and I'm telling you we're talking about years in the making and other relationships where you meet and like next week you've moved in together and you share all your stuff and it's this immediate and intense connection uh, kind of like um, a passionate interest right the relationship becomes the central focus and the singular focus and that partner uh, is now just a part of that person's life. Okay, and do you think one is better than the other, or, or do you, or do you think they both come with issues, or, or do you think the middle way is best? Well, I personally think the middle way is best, only because I think if you do rush into something, obviously there's something that feels really good there, and there's some kind of connection, um, but you could be missing some of those red flags and warning signs because it's happening so quickly, you don't have time to pick up on them. Um, and then the slow relationships, I feel like it's so cautious, I mean, you're missing out on opportunities where you could have been connecting sooner, but a lot of it is just trying to feel comfortable um, getting closer with someone and uh, being vulnerable and learning how to communicate openly and that takes time for some people so really I guess it's whatever's best for each person yeah and just one final question you kind of mentioned red flags what what are the sort of relationship red flags that autistic people should be looking out for Autistic people tend to be givers, and what I mean by that, like we, when we had our uh, Asperfem group uh, last week and we were talking about friendships, so many of those people talked about they give and give and give in their friendships and they don't get a lot in return. And I think this happens in uh, romantic partnerships as well. There can be a risk of that where uh, the person is so eager to please and so happy to finally have someone who loves them and accepts them that they have no sense of boundaries and they just uh, overextend themselves without asking for anything in return and this can really lead to a very imbalanced relationship. Uh, there's also you know, emotional, physical and sexual abuse that can emerge in relationships and sometimes that doesn't happen immediately and the person on the spectrum might be complacent to that uh, if they feel like everything's going really well they might not see the warning signs because what are the warning signs well the warning signs of abuse or behavior i would say if someone is um not treating you with respect if someone when you make a comment about your needs if they dismiss that or say like oh well, that's not important or you're such a loser if you need something like that like if someone is engaging um in in put downs mm. right yeah um if someone is encroaching upon your space like you if you have stuff around and you notice that oh that's not nice i don't like that there we should have my stuff there so the partner is really controlling the space within the relationship or controlling your time where are you going who are you going out with i don't want you speaking to so and so and so and so so as soon as the other partner starts to create rules um about the person 
person's behavior, their whereabouts, or their social interactions, that's a huge red flag for a controlling and abusive relationship. I sat down with Rose Matthews, who's one of my lovely colleagues in Autistica. She works on the policy team. Uh, We had a chat about relationships and what it's like to be in relationships when you're autistic. Um, I think a lot of people are going to relate a lot to what Rose has to say. So have a listen. I was always too willing to um, be the chameleon person who would just adopt somebody else's lifestyle, hobbies, social circle. I mean, probably because I didn't actually have any friends of my own. I was very grateful when I met somebody who came with friends Mm -hmm. and I would go out of my way to just fit in. So, you know, um, I, I, you know, my, my, the people that I was with didn't necessarily share the same political views or um, kind of views about social issues. And that was increasingly uncomfortable. There was me in my RSPB bird protection jacket, you know, with somebody who went pheasant shooting. And, you know, it just kind (laughs) of didn't really make sense. But, you know, from... I suppose it was over time... It was, it was uh, I mean, an extraordinary number of years before I actually saw a pattern. Like, this is strange because I'm very good at spotting patterns in other ways. And when I did research, I was always really quick to see the patterns. Mm. But somehow with your own life, it's harder. So eventually, 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 when I was in my 40s, I, it dawned on me that I was just repeating the same pattern over and over again which was to be incredibly grateful if anybody was interested in being in a relationship with me, to work extremely hard to fit in with them and to continue even though aspects of it were deeply painful. So, and, and yet, strangely, I would have said, oh, I'm not afraid to be on my own. I lived on my own for a lot of years. Mm-hmm. I, I was quite, I'm quite comfortable with my own company, but I kind of kept falling into bad company. Yeah, again, I relate. And the, but you came up with a, a sort of a, a fantastic way when you did realise the patterns that you were in, you came up with a, a fantastic way of, of approaching a future relationship. So you came up with how you, you met your, your husband now, so the, the spreadsheet that you put together, which is so such a fantastic idea well funnily enough it, it probably the origins of this went right back to when I was a teenager playing one of those games that teenage girls like to play where they kind of write down lists mm. about somebody they might want to be with and um so yeah it was a game I suppose in teenage years and then like when I was really I suppose partly what it was I was with somebody and it was clear that there was going to be no security, no real future together. Um, And I used to go and buy outfits in a charity shop because we were always going off to do's and functions that required dressing up. And I love dressing up with a passion. So I was always role-playing in all these situations. I'd need a hat, I'd need an outfit to go boating on the Norfolk Broads, I'd need this, I'd need that. And the lovely ladies in the charity shop who were my um, personal dressers, they, they suddenly said to me, you know, you're, you're getting older and we're not being... don't want to alarm you, but has it occurred to you that as you get older, 
you know, if you don't find somebody, if you don't settle down, is is that what you want to be alone um, in 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 old age? And I suddenly thought, well, actually, no, I do want companionship. I yearn for for real companionship. Um, so I thought, well, I keep getting it wrong because I keep going with some kind of random. Um, spontaneous instinctive thing that just doesn't work and I need to apply the same this sounds awful but I need to apply the same procedure that I would apply if I was recruiting somebody Mm. so if I was recruiting somebody at work I would start off by saying okay well what is it that we need what do we really want here you know what would complement the skill set we already have what would work what would fit in with the culture And then I kind of thought, well, you get a kind of job description. So I ended up with this kind of series of statements about the kind of person that I wanted to be with. So they needed to be kind, generous spirited, optimistic, um, have a a strong sense of social justice, share a similar political position, all of those kind of things. And then that was where the spreadsheet came in. I, I kind of had my checklist and then I, after a bit of a dodgy start where I went on to him, I joined a, a dating service that was actually connected like with people with different politics. It took me a while to kind of cotton on to the fact that I really needed to find a dating site that reflected the person that I really was. So I eventually found myself my way to a, a website, dating site, where I would meet similar-minded people. And then I had to have the spreadsheet because, and again, this sounds bad, but it wasn't um, in a way. I just felt that in the same way with recruitment, where you need to kind of um, screen a lot of people quickly to Mm -hmm. see who might be compatible, that I needed to do that. So I was talking to a lot of people simultaneously, but not disguising that fact, making it perfectly clear that I was having a lot of exploratory conversations Mm -hmm. And then um, and met some people, but I had this um, this spreadsheet just to kind of keep track of who was who and um, what interests they had and whether they had a dog. That was big, very important, hugely important. If they had a cat, could potentially be problematic. So, <laughs> and and yeah. So I mean, I I didn't think too much about this until later when people asked me oh how did you meet and then some people were really quite horrified and told me it was deeply unromantic but actually I thought it was really romantic to go looking for somebody who would be that good fit and to put a lot of effort into Mm -hmm. actually finding them and to accept that it happens the other way around so for everybody that wasn't a good fit for me there were people I wasn't a good fit for them so I think one of the things about dating and online stuff is it's the rejection it's a bit like applying for jobs and job interviews you have to kind of galvanize yourself against rejection because it will happen and it doesn't mean to say you're not um, a good person a lovely person um that you don't have good qualities, but it's just a fact that you won't have that easiness of getting on with everybody. Yeah. And what's what's really lovely, I think, about the, the way that you guys met is the fact that previously you'd been putting other people's needs first. But with this, you were like, well, what do I need? What's going to fit with my life? 
and that's where it came from which I think is an absolutely gorgeous thing to to be able to say and I think it's quite hard because I did censor one field on the um, questionnaire which was around what I really wanted and um, I really wanted to be married again because I'd, I'd been happily married at one time and uh, I felt that marriage was what I wanted and yet I daren't say what I wanted for fear of putting off people because the stereotypical view is a lot of people are scared at the prospect of marriage and funnily enough when I was matched with my now husband and I looked at his questionnaire he ticked the box that he wanted marriage so I snapped back in and corrected my long-term relationship to marriage because I thought okay so so he's somebody who's okay with that so I can I can and again you know it, it was it was a bit sad that I felt the need to censor what I really really wanted for fear of alienating other people but it is a tough one it is it definitely is if you're autistic a family member or a searcher or if you work with autistic people you can join discover discover is the uk's autism research network run by autistica you'll get email updates on the latest research and you'll hear about studies you can take part in by working together and sharing knowledge we can make real progress for autistic people Join now at autistica.org.uk slash join discover. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Subscribe to hear more and we'd love it if you'd leave us a review. Discover is brought to you by Autistica, the UK's autism research charity.